All right, tonight, one uh, uh, theme passage of scripture, and then we'll touch on some other scriptures throughout. Uh, I just want to break this verse down. And we're going to be talking about this, I think, later in the year. Um, And uh, I think that this verse will become important to us later in the year. But right now, I just felt like this is something that the Lord is saying across the body of Christ that we should be aware of. It's Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Give you a minute to turn there. I am so appreciating this new sound system and hearing all the parts when the vocalists sing and hearing the instruments and having balance and and all of that. It's wonderful. And they have me up just a little bit hot tonight, so if I start to preach in, who knows? You might hear the voice of the fair. All right. Um, Acts 2 and 46 just says this, speaking of the apostles in the early church there, the, the, the participants in the early church. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, they continued daily with one accord whether they were in the temple or whether they were going house to house, breaking bread uh, in fellowship together, they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So I want to talk about this. This denotes to us a lifestyle that developed in the early church. And I believe with all of my heart that as uh, time progresses and as God's time clock begins to wind up in the earth or continues to wind up in the earth, I really see, I, I, when I have, I had a clock in my house that we bought for decor, the, the clock itself never worked. And I, uh, we hung it on the wall in the spot that we had, it's hung there for several years, and I always set the clock at five minutes till midnight, that clock. Because I wanted, as part of the decor, that every time I looked at it, that I reminded myself that the time is short. So I set that shorthand on the 12, and I set that uh, uh, longhand just before 12, so that I would always remind myself, time's running out. And it, was, it just hung there as decor, and it was a continual reminder to me that, that hey, time is winding up, We're, and Jesus is coming again. But in the, uh, in the early church, uh, of course, it, things did not exist quite in this fashion until Jesus came and he died and rose again. And, and the church culture was a brand new culture to their experience. They were, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit after all. They were praying in the Spirit. They were in the Word of God with new revelation about who Jesus was and what it meant to have a Messiah and what it looked like to have the deposit of the Holy Spirit and what it was supposed to be doctrinally when you understood that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that your body is the temple of God and now the throne of God resides within the believer and and we're seated together with him in heavenly places and all this stuff was unfolding in their mind I, I can't imagine what those early years must have been like as they discovered what God was saying to them about this new environment that had been created called the church well they were, uh, the, the Bible says that in, that in that environment, it was important, the things that happened in that environment was important enough to the Lord in that season uh, to uh, convey to us that one thing they did, above all else, the Lord felt it so important to tell us that they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So uh, as I began to contemplate the year ahead, the Lord has laid upon my heart that he is returning the body of Christ to a culture within the church where this is a description of what we do in our daily lives. And I believe that for the church to be successful in the generations that are ahead, however long that may last, in the, years, the days and years that are ahead, that if the church is to be successful in the earth, the church above all else will continue daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, eating their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. That the church will begin to recognize uh, the lifestyle that is described here, and, and it will become our culture. 
The culture at Church of Living Water has for many years been a Sunday morning culture. Are you here? Um, There was a point in time in history, recent history of Church of Living Water. I was the worship leader and Bishop Halverson was the pastor. And the hunger for the word we saw dissipate for just a period of time. There was a dissipation in the hunger for the word of God among the constituents and, the, and, and the, the, those who were attending Church of Living Water at that time. Some of you were here. You probably would remember that season. And uh, me being who I am, I prepared the word of God. If there was three or 30 or 3,500, I'm going to prepare the same. I put the same energy into preparing to teach the word. No matter how many or how few I'm teaching, I'm going to be prepared with the word of God. And so I was in the middle of a series. This was close to the end of Bishop's tenure here. I was in the middle of a series. And uh, on Wednesday evenings, I was teaching the Wednesday evening Bible study, had been assigned to do this and was in the middle of this series. And the attendance in that that Bible study environment was just pew, 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 pew. And there was um, 15 or 18 people who had signed up for this class and who were committed and attended, and then there would be three, and then there would be seven, and then there would be two. And you can't teach a series in that environment, you know, if you're going uh, through points. Uh, and, and those days, we didn't have uh, the uh, podcast to be able to go back and catch up. And I felt this sense of frustration that was not natural to me, because uh, I don't easily get frustrated, but I think it was from the Lord. And I went to Bishop Halverson and I said, something is out of order. And we began to identify that the body of Christ needed to hunger fresh for the word. And in those days, he got up after we had this discussion and much to my surprise said, tonight's the last Wednesday night. We will not have them again until there's a hunger for the word. And I was floored. I mean, it was like, I didn't know if that was discipline or frustration or direction, or I wasn't quite sure what angle of, in Bishop that came out of, but it came, and, and wham, we were Sunday morning church. And we were for a, a good period of time, and then God began to uh, renew and restore us and re- re- renew our hunger for the Word of God and for deeper things than just that 40 minutes on Sunday morning teaching and all of that and the fellowship that was lacking in that environment we begin to rebuild back into the uh, life of Church of Living Water Bible study and fellowships and all the things that we now do and are continuing to broaden um, the culture that the early church existed in was a Christian culture that was daily this says First of all, I'm going to just take these words that are used in this particular passage of Scripture. They continued. That denotes lifestyle. That denotes not religion. Religion is something that you do consistently until it becomes religious in its nature, repetitive. Religion is a repetitive act. But that's not what this is denoting. This denotes lifestyle. It was so important to them that they continued in these things, that it became their lifestyle to uh, uh, continue in one accord in the temple, uh, in the breaking of bread from house to house, and eating their meat with gladness and singleness apart. So I give you some scriptures here. I'm just going to throw them out there and read them to you. John 8:31. Jesus said to the Jews who believed on him, "If you continue in my word." Then you're my disciples. And in John 15, 9, he said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue in my love. So what he was saying to them is, Develop a lifestyle that keeps you in my word. Develop a lifestyle that keeps you in my love. So when I see that word continue, I see that the, uh, that the disciples and the early church developed a lifestyle that kept them in these important factors that defined the lifestyle that Christians were to have. And I believe that the Lord is saying, you will return to this to maintain your strength. You will return to this to become what you need to be. The Bible says uh, that we as a body of Christ, as we, uh, as we are joints at supply and as we build one another up, I believe that as the days grow more like uh, days of Noah, I actually have that scripture written down. As the, as the, the days wax worse in our culture, 
We were talking about this in men's prayer the other night. As the days wax worse in our culture, we're going to find it more important that we continue in these things. And we're going to find uh, these instructions far more important than we have found them to date. And so I challenge you that your walk with God be a walk that develops an attitude of continuing daily in his word, uh, so daily, the, the word daily, they continue. Daily is the next word I want to look at. Daily sets the, uh, the atmosphere or sets the notes priority. All you need to do to determine what your highest priority is, is look at how you spend your time. Start keeping a time journal and you'll find out what's most important to you. I think some people would discover that Fox News is more important to them than anything else in the earth. God help them if that's true, but I think there are people that would discover that if they were actually to keep a time journal. If you kept a time journal and then you looked at your checkbook register, combine the two of those things, because the Bible says where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, that we will find out where our priority is. And I mean, the Lord, uh, Laura and I are very busy, and our life is, is wonderful, and the, and the life of this house and all that God has us involved in and doing, and we have felt convicted about our time. And we have begun to pay attention. You know what we discovered about uh, favorite TV shows? Because I'm a TV watcher. I'm not, I don't hide the fact that that's kind of the way I unwind and relax. We discovered on demand. You can tell your TV when you want to watch. Your TV doesn't get to tell you when you have to watch. What a great discovery. Then we don't have to sit there and listen to all that stuff we don't want to hear. But we began to take much more responsibility for our time uh, in, in those areas and uh, realized the scripture says that daily. This is why we, when we talk about discipleship and we talk about time in the word, we talk about daily activities. If you save your time with Jesus until it's convenient, you won't have any. But if you set as a high priority your time with the Lord and your time in prayer and your time or your time in the word or, or in uh, meditation and contemplation around the things of the Lord, if you set that time aside, then it will, uh, it will take its appropriate priority. I remember when the Lord said to me, and I've told you this story before, and I tell you again, uh, I had a vision of, of I was coming up a hill, and there was this little cave, and, when I, and, and I felt drawn in there, and I walked in, and there was Jesus... And there was an altar, and there was, a, there was a, the presence of the Lord, and I realized that I had just stepped into the holy place. It was a dream that I had. And I heard the Lord say after I'd spent time with him there, come here as often as you can, because so many people are in such a hurry to reach the destination that they pass by here without giving consideration to the entrance of this place. So you will find this place all along your journey. Come here as often as you can. It was the Lord saying in another way to me, you know, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come. It was a beautiful picture, much more to it than that, and I won't get into that. But Matthew 6 and 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And all these things denote all those other things that have priority in your life. All those other things that you desire. All those other things that you need to accomplish. All these things is an umbrella that covers everything other than the kingdom of God. Right here? And so when we talk about daily, we're talking, God is going to put the body of Christ, if we will not, if we will not set the appropriate priorities in the days ahead, he will put us in a position where we need to. I guess that come from the Lord. I have found in life, the, the children of Israel found in their walk with God, that if they wouldn't set their priorities correctly and appropriately, that he would allow circumstances to arise in their life usually that they brought upon themselves, they would bring circumstances upon themselves that would cause them then to turn their attention and cry out to God. I'd much rather cry out to God before I need to. Before circumstances tell me that I must. Before everything is falling apart or before trouble comes or before, you know, whatever. Call upon the Lord. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't wait until he's moving on. Then you're like, wait for me. I've done that too, you know? So they continued daily, denotes lifestyle and priority. And then the Bible says that they continued in one accord, not a Honda. They continued in unity. They continued in unity of purpose. The Bible uh, says to uh, be careful to even speak the same things. They continued to, to say the same things. They continued to have uh, the same attitude toward life. They begin to take God's mind toward one another and to speak his mind about one another. So the Bible says that they continued in unity. Uh, unity is a very powerful thing that we realize that without it uh, comes contention. You either have unity or you have contention. Right? Those are the polar, polar opposites. Okay, the Bible says that in contention dwells... Say it loud, Benjamin. Every evil work. So we either have unity where God can dwell, or we have contention wherein dwells every evil work. What's, that, what's he saying about contention? That is the door of access to the enemy. We're very careful about the issue of contention in our lives. Uh, whenever we feel contention, we, now listen, we have discussion. We have lively discussion. If you know our personalities, we have a lot of lively discussion. Then we settle upon where we agree, and that is it. And there is no contention. There's a difference between discussion and contention. Discussion that never comes to resolution is an environment of contention. But in contention, where there is constant disagreement and constant frustration and constant never settling upon unity and coming to a place of unity, that is the door, that is the access of the door of the enemy. In the house of the Lord, if there's contention, who's getting the work done? The Bible says in contention there's every evil work. Unity, on the other hand, Behold how good and how pleasant it is, Psalm 133, verse 1, for brethren to, to dwell together in unity. Another place the Bible says that unity is like, like the, you know, it typifies or examples, unity uh, is example by the anointing. What that tells us is the anointing cannot exist in an environment of contention. The anointing can only exist in an environment of unity for an extended period of time. You can get a season of anointing. You can, get, you can stand and worship and be as contentious as you want to be, and you can praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit's faithful. He'll come in, and there will be a season of anointing in that worship time or whatever. And that's what confuses people, because then when they feel the anointing, they think God is pleased and everything is okay. But the only way that you know that... Uh, the, that, that uh, God is there, the anointing continues. The anointing is maintained in places of unity. The anointing cannot be maintained in a house of contention. So the Bible says that they continued in one accord. That tells me that they were purposeful about being in unity. Which means that even if they disagreed, they chose to find a place of unity where they could walk. You'll find out if you're, Benjamin says this, I love this, this is, I, I'm, I find the longer that Benjamin and I walk together, the more that I repeat his nuggets of wisdom. Do you, do you realize that? I'm doing that reg, quite regularly now. That's wonderful. That show, we're speaking the same things. We're speaking the same things. But Benjamin said something that just was light bulbs to me quite a while ago now, years ago maybe that you'll find out if you're in unity or not when you disagree. Otherwise, you're just together until you disagree. Then you have division. But it's when you can be in unity and have some disagreement, have some differing of opinion or some differing, differing perspective, but yet stay in unity and be purposeful about the goal and, and where we're headed, then you find out whether or not you're in unity. Well, God didn't say that the anointing comes in agreement. The word did not say the anointing comes in agreement. The word said the anointing comes in unity. Now, the prayer of agreement for people in unity is very powerful. But the Bible does not say that agreement brings, un brings anointing. The Bible said unity brings anointing. Unity sets the environment for anointing. So, 
Ephesians 4.3 admonishes us in this area, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's the bond of peace? What's he referring to there? When he says the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, it is endeavoring to walk in unity so that peace can be sustained rather than contention. That means folks have to be humble. They have to be willing to... uh, let someone else's opinion prevail in a conversation or in a decision that it's made. They have to be okay whenever things, right now we're dealing with, we're, we're enjoying, really enjoying uh, some of this. Uh, it's interesting when you do things that change the culture, culture of a church or culture of a department or whatever. How many know change is hard? So Martha's working with the, Folks back there, the ushers and the greeters, and they're kind of forming up what the Welcome Center is going to look like, and they're doing all this, and they're writing policies and procedures and how things are going to work. And a lot of changes come into people's tasks that they normally do. And everybody's smiling. And everybody, even if, if a procedure gets put in place that they're not particularly happy with, they're, they're dealing with it. and get it. You know what? That's when you find out if you have units here or not. When you have someone go, I'm not doing that. I don't like that policy, or I don't like that procedure. We don't have that. Thank you, Jesus. Thus far, keep us in prayer. (laughs) Pray for all those guys that are getting new job assignments and having to let go of old territories and all that. It's wonderful. Uh, Hey, I've learned that one thing for sure, change is certain. If we're going to grow, move forward, you either change or you're dead. That's good, Becky. Either change or you're dead. So, Uh, Ephesians 4.13 says this. The reason unity is so important until we all come into the unity of faith. If we don't grasp unity, we can't get to unity in faith. That's That's God's goal for the church. That's always been his goal for the church. Till we all come to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a perfect man, and to the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. The direction, or the, the door, to the measure and stature and fullness of Christ is unity of faith. Okay, so I just, uh, I just see this, that, uh, that when, they con- when it says that they continued daily with one accord, they worked at being in unity. They humbled themselves when they disagreed. They found a way to articulate their words so that they could build one another up even whenever they disagreed or misunderstood one another. They, they took time to sort through the issues and strengthen one another and build one another up and not tear one another down or get mad and storm and leave the room. And they, they worked at unity. You need to work at unity in your home. You need to work at unity in your relationships. You need to work toward unity in your workplace. You need to be an example of it as a believer among unbelievers. And we need to understand that God is bringing the church to the place that we will live in unity in order for us to ever reach his purpose and his design for us. Then the Bible says, the, the, this word says, they, they continue daily with one accord in the temple. That's the corporate gathering. That's when we all come together here. Ephesians 4.16 says the whole body fitly joined together and compacted about by which every joint supplies according to the effectual working and the measure of every part makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. I know if I've heard anything from the Holy Spirit in my life at all, I have heard and understood that, the whole, that it will become increasingly important for us as believers to be together. corporate gathering, things happen in the corporate gathering that I have never seen happen in my prayer closet. By the same token, things happen in my prayer closet that will never happen in the corporate gathering. Because I get really loud in prayer closet. Probably won't get that way in the corporate gathering. Quite the same. Um, But the gathering of the saints as time progresses becomes increasingly more important and the Holy Spirit will begin to put a desire within you to be together and to be in this place together and to see the faces of those people that have become family to you. Because how many know that the more that you follow Jesus, there comes almost, 
I hate to say this this way, but Jesus said it. He said, I, I didn't come to put everybody together. I was some, there's going to become some division here because this stone is the stone that the builders rejected. This Jesus is the Jesus that some people rejected. Well, in a culture where everyone's wanting Christians to shut their mouth, how many understand that the more you love Jesus and the more you spend time, it's going to become increasingly more important to spend time with believers, if for no other reason than for the strength to be able to have uh, the boldness to be who you're supposed to be out there? Because out there, we're increasingly around more and more people who wish we would shut up and go away. And we're not going to. <laughs> Somebody say Amen. We're not going to. So, in the temple becomes increasingly more important. Uh, he says in Romans 12.10, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. And then the next words in this passage say, And breaking bread from house to house. I want to talk about breaking bread uh, from house to house. So we'll just kind of combine these two. That denotes a lifestyle of fellowship. It also tells us that God wants to show up at your house. Amen. It also tells us that there ought to be a gathering of believers and the fellowship of the brethren at your house. Now, if you're not there yet, and if that's not possible for some reason within the framework of your lifestyle, um, then have the fellowship of believers at Starbucks. Bring an invitation to someone to come and sit with me a while and then ensure that when you sit together, you talk about Jesus and the good things of the Lord and the word of God. And I don't care if you come with a loaded question. Hey, what do you think about this passage of scripture? What do you think God means when he says this? Just inciting discussion about the kingdom of God, about the things of God. Because, uh, because the fellowship is going to become increasingly more important. It becomes strength to us. And then get to the place, if you're not the kind of person who can open your home at this point in life, that perhaps someday you can. Begin to target that the Spirit of the Lord is going to come into your house. That the Spirit of the Lord is going to come into your dwelling place. It's that, that's why I, I guess I've beat this. this is, is it, you tell me if this is a dead horse and I've beat it to death enough, but I keep continually saying to everyone, and I think this is part of our personal discipleship, go home, look at every room of your house, and ask yourself, is this a room I could bring Jesus in? And if there's any, anything there or any reason there, it might just be that you need to run the vacuum before he stops by. I don't know. Oh, Lord, what was that preacher's name? I always forget his name. He was, a, he was a black preacher, and he was in L.A. He's passed away, gone on to be with the Lord. Anyway, I don't can remember. Can, Evie Hill. E, e. Hill, yes. Love that man, because he shoot straight from the hip. And he grew up in a time when there was great prejudice, and he was a black man, and uh, he had experienced that prejudice. And in those days because of his age, he grew up understanding, not on a plantation by any means, but understanding what it meant to be in a culture where uh, those folks who were very wealthy looked down upon those who were very poor, and he came up through that very poor place. And he said, Lord, someday I'm going to be in the big house. That's how he said it. I mean, he was just being who he was. And if that offends you, I'm sorry, too bad. That, that was his experience. And so whenever the Lord blessed him and, and, and promoted him in the kingdom and, and resources came into his life, he bought a house in L.A. And he said the house that he had in L.A. had a big balcony. And he said, I'd go up on the balcony and look out over the valley in L.A. And he said, and this is what he said, he's preaching. He says, if you can't fix your screen, don't move into my neighborhood. Take care of what the Lord has given you. Okay, you know, the, the point is well taken. That God wants us to be responsible over this, the little things in our life. And if you can't clean your ugly car, don't ask him for a new one. 
okay, if we want to set an environment for the Lord to come, it doesn't matter if you live in an opulent place or if you have a humble place, but make it a place that that the Lord can come in. Clean and well prepared as though though you were inviting guests. And then make it another place where others, other believers can come in. I don't care if you're you're sitting on mismatched furniture. None of that matters. Just make the environment a place where God can dwell. And then be faithful over the little that he gives you and trust him for greater things. God always speaks greater things. He wants you to have better stuff than you have now. He's not bothered by better stuff. Our first set of furniture was hand-me-down furniture, but I don't have hand-me-down furniture today. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I don't know why I said all that, but that fellowship aspect is important. And the reason that, 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 that we've got to understand this is that there are a lot of people who feel that because they are in humble environments, they can't have anyone in. They can't fellowship. Can you imagine feeling like you could not fellowship with other believers in your own home? If you are there, get before the Lord this year and work to change that. And then when you set an environment where Jesus can come and he is well comfortable there, anywhere Jesus can go, I can go. Right? Come on. So fellowship becomes more important. Uh, as time progresses. John 13, 34 says, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment. They'd never heard this before. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So what? Love one another. How did he love us? He laid down his life. We're not supposed to just love one another. We're supposed to love one another to the point that it might cost us some time some resource, some availability, some energy, some investment in the lives of one another. A church will never be more effective than a church can be when they're invested in one another. I, we can preach till we're blue in the face. We can create every kind of program that, that exists in churches today, and, and, and people can love it and go, ooh, I like the children's program. Ooh, I like the youth program. Ooh, I like this program. I like the music, whatever. If the church is not fellowshipping and relating to one another, we can't be what the church is supposed to be. And to the strength of the brethren, the fellowship will become increasingly more important as time progresses. So uh, he said, love one another as I have loved you. Acts uh, 2 and 44 uh, explains uh, an environment as part of this culture in the early church. Now all who believed were together. All who believed were together and had all things common. Now, this is what this tells me. They were not sitting around waiting for someone to call them and invite them over. Well, I guess they don't like me. They didn't call me and invite me. What does the Bible say you need to do to have friends? Show yourself friendly. So then, if that is true, who's responsible to make the call? And if you don't get a call, what's your responsibility? Make the call. It's that simple. It really is. I mean, that is just simple. That's simple Bible teaching. Make the call. They were not sitting around waiting for someone to invite them in to fellowship. They were creating environments of fellowship. They weren't waiting for that to be uh, administrated for them, dictated to them. They weren't waiting for that to be imagined by someone else who says, you know what I think you ought to do? They were creating environments of fellowship. And they were sharing their possessions. They were sharing their resources. I love it. When I hear somebody say, I need something, uh, you know, I need, a, I need a, a shelf, I need a chair, I need a this, and I, and I have one. And I'm like, I've got that. I think when, when uh, Pam's daughter was, right after the, was that after the baby was born or just before? As the baby was born, she said, she really needs a comfortable chair to sit down in. And I said, well, I've got a chair if you think it would be comfortable sitting in storage. You want to use it? You want to have it? I don't care. Well, we'll just use it. So they took it over her house, used it until she was done with it, and brought it back. That's wonderful. 
Okay, that's just, just exchange of resources. I've given so many things away. Six months later, I thought, I need that. Wish I would have kept that. But God always gives me better. Always restores, gives back. So always sowing out of our lives. Having, when he says having all things common, I believe that that will become the culture of the church again where that we have all things common, where that we've got our ear tuned to the lives of our brothers and sisters, and if they need something we have that we don't need, that we sow it into their life. But I could sell that in yard sale and get $20. Over yourself. Acts 4.32 says this, it's speaking of the same thing, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. Now, does that mean that someone could walk into someone else's house at any time they want and take anything they want? No. Because they would have been stealing. What that means is they had a sense within the culture that was developed that if you need something and it's within my power to get it to you, I will get it to you. If I have something that you need and I can resource your life so that you are not struggling in one area or another, if, if it's within my power to do so, I'll get it to you. The reason I know that that was the environment that, that, they, that they set among themselves and the reason that I understand that it wasn't just that, that everybody's stuff was everybody's stuff was because there also remains in the life of the believer uh, the area where when something doesn't just automatically come, there's a place where we learn to trust the Lord. So it wasn't come and take what you want. It was they had all things common. Nobody assumed that everything in their house was their own. What they assumed was, everything I have belongs to God anyway. So if there's something, Lord, that I have that someone else needs. One time, I I have this, I have, Laura and I, a few years back, well, about two years ago, we realized our house is very full and there's no quiet places hardly, you know, and so we redid our bedroom. And in our bedroom, we put a little bigger TV, because men like that. And we put a a reclining love seat at the end of our bed, where that if we needed to, the kids know, okay, at the threshold there, you don't cross that threshold. That's my spot. Uh Uh-uh. You better ask before you enter, or I'll thump you. And uh, so so a while back, someone uh, that we knew needed some furniture, and um, I said, we're in the living room. I said, Laura, they really need a small love seat for that space. And she goes, give them yours. <laughs> and I said, no. But I had to go after she said that and find out if the Lord was speaking something to me or not. And in the meantime, uh, something else worked out. And I praised to the Lord that he wasn't reaching to my love seat. <laughs> but nevertheless... If my heart had come into agreement with that word, that had been gone the next morning. Because everything that we have belongs to him. And if he determines that he wants it, he has an invitation to come and get it. Amen. We have all things common. That's the, that's the culture that Christians are to live in. And you will find if you will live in that culture, things that you need will come to you much quicker. Praise God. Uh, So he said that they continued house to house, breaking bread. Church was never intended, hear this, I, I almost think that this comes out prophetically when I wrote it on the paper. Church was never intended to be confined to a building. It is unfortunate in our culture that we call this edifice that we're sitting in the church because it speaks to the culture and inappropriate understanding. I don't know what we're supposed to call it, 
Because in our culture, we say we're going to church. But what we should be saying is at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, the church gathers. That should be our culture. And then whenever, uh, the other night, Manuel and Sheba called us and they said, hey, uh, we know you guys have been really busy. We want to bring you dinner. Did you know that at my house that night, the church gathered? It was wonderful. They came over. We had dinner together. And they went on their way. And the church, for a few moments around my table, had gathered. We've been invited over to Benjamin Pants from time to time. When we're there, and it's just the four of us, the church is gathering. You need to understand the reality of that. That whenever some, uh, another believer, the, that's why, you, listen, the scripture made the point that where two or three gather together in my name, I'm in the midst of them. And I think the Lord is going to say to some of us, why did you let me give you such a nice house? And then you never had anyone in to encourage them. Why did you not use that resource for the good of the kingdom? I really think he's going to ask us that. I think he's going to ask some people, because we've all, we, several of us here in the room have, done, have entered into foster care and, and worked for seasons. I don't think anybody does that for a life. And I don't think everybody can do that. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think there will be some people who the Lord says, you had a three-bedroom house, you had beds in every room, and nobody ever slept in them. Why? And I, and I don't, listen, I'm not, please don't misunderstand me. You have to know if that's what the Lord is saying to you. But I do believe he's going to inquire about the resources he gave us and how we use them. I love that uh, Benjamin and Pam's house, uh, the last time Benjamin and I spoke on Skype to one of the missionaries, we sat in their prayer room. And then they have a guest room that missionaries have stayed in. Okay, I think God gets excited about the environment that has been set there. I get excited about it. I can go over and hang out just because there's peace in that house. I think it's cool. There's anointing there because there's been prayer. There's been an environment where the Holy Spirit's been invited. You walk in their prayer room, the Holy Spirit's already waiting. Somebody show up and talk to me. It's wonderful. I love it. But church was never intended to be confined to a single building. We take the message, the commission, the great commission, Mark 16 and 15, it's expressed in one way. It says, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We take that as a missional assignment. We see that and we think that that's telling us, okay, you're here in Fresno and you need to go to Merced to preach the gospel. Or you're here in this city and you need to go to that nation to preach the gospel. And really what the Lord is saying is get intermingled with the world in a way that is meaningful, that allows you to share the gospel. I think going into all the world might be in your living room. Might be at the Starbucks. I love sitting at Starbucks with my Bible. I don't do it enough. I love it. And I love when I go to Starbucks and I see two or three people with their Bible open around a little table. Do you know Starbucks doesn't like Christians? Do you realize that? They don't, they don't like Christians. The, the, the corporate mindset of Starbucks. They're not really keen on Christians. In fact, they invited us all not to go there if we were going to preach against homosexuality. They made a very public statement that if you don't like them, don't come here. And we all go and we use their buildings for church. <laughs> we disciple people there. The devil built it. We're discipling people. Isn't that wonderful? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, that might just be, that might just be your, your friend from work down at the Starbucks with a study guide. I think... Oh, it was Melinda that you said invite someone to go through, and I know Pam did, invited people to go through Timothy that aren't saved. I'm going to go through this Bible study. Would you go through it with me? It's discipleship, but they're not even having received Jesus yet. But you know what? First lesson, this is what it means to receive Jesus. Three lessons in, this is what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, you take somebody on a teaching of the Holy Spirit that haven't even received Jesus yet. That'll challenge you. But you know what Jesus did with the disciples? They weren't Christians. He said, come follow me, and I will make you 
fishers of men. You come and follow me and I'll make you what I've designed you to be. So we ought to be saying to the world around us, come follow me. Just come walk, come hang out with me. I'm so glad those days are gone whenever, um, whenever I was growing up, they preached against having unsaved friends. Don't hang out with them old sinners. You go down there and, and they'll rub off on you. I've heard that. Okay, in my Bible, light still dispels darkness. Darkness isn't supposed to rub off on me. I'm supposed to rub off on darkness. Somebody needs to say amen to that. And so, but in those days, they would do that. They would preach that way, and they would teach us not to go hang around with those sinner folk. And then we, two, two or three weeks in January, and then maybe later in the year, we'd have a revival meeting. And back in those days when they had revival, preacher came on Sunday, then they dismissed Monday, and then they went Tuesday through Saturday. And then Sunday again, maybe dismissed Monday, and go two weeks of that, every night of the week, except Monday night. And they'd get up for three weeks before revival and beg us to bring our unsafe friends. Which ones? So we had three weeks to go make friends with sinners and then invite them to church so they could get saved. All those people we had been ignoring. Okay, that makes no sense at all, right? That's just, that's just how foolish that is. The Bible said that Jesus was a friend to sinners. He, he actually took condemnation for it. Can you believe he's eaten with those people? Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. I love sinners. Because I were one at one time. So the church was never intended to be confined to a single building. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then that ended with a very interesting, that that passage of scripture ends with a very interesting statement. Gladness and singleness of heart. And I see that as a combined statement, gladness and singleness of heart. I don't think you can have gladness if you don't have singleness of heart. And I think if you have singleness of heart and it's directed in the right place, you, you cannot help but have gladness, joy, joyfulness. joyfulness. Gladness is an atmosphere of joyfulness that exists whether or not you're in a good season. Gladness is an attitude that is maintained even when everything's going wrong and you're having a bad day. You go in and all those students are grumpy, you still can have gladness. And when you get up in the morning and everything goes wrong, you can still maintain an environment of gladness if you have singleness of heart. So what this denotes is a spirit of joy in an atmosphere of undivided loyalties. I'm going to tell you what singleness of heart means. I'm a Christian before I'm an American. Oh, some, there might be some people who don't like that statement. I'm a, I'm a believer first. When I, when I came into the kingdom of God, he became my king. And I'm not in a democracy. I'm in a theocracy. If we get into theology there, you understand. I'm under the leadership of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He rules and reigns. So if my government tells me that I can't preach the gospel because it's not politically correct, I'm going to obey my king. This is, this, listen, the church has to get the singleness of heart. We live in a culture that does not have this. The culture that you're living in tells you that you should keep your faith to yourself. And that your faith is okay for you and that their faith is okay for them and that they're deciding not to have any faith is okay for them. But the Bible tells me that they're on their way to hell and they're on their way to hell and if you don't open your mouth, they're going to hell and they're going to stand in front of God and they're going to say, why is it that I worked with you day after day in the desk next to me and you never told me that you knew Jesus and now you're going to heaven and I'm going to hell? I've literally had that picture in my mind. And I understand that the, uh, it, cry, it causes me to cry out for the spirit of the evangelist to be raised up in this house, and we're moving quickly in that direction. But what I realize is that unless the body of Christ comes to singleness of heart, we will have the attitude that everybody's okay just as they are. And we will let our friends and loved ones 
go into eternity without God because they just want to be left alone. And we have an assignment from God. We have an invitation from the Lord that says, whosoever will, and then we have an attitude that we're not going to let them know that they can. Am I hitting that too hard? I feel an urgency about this. Singleness of heart. What, how, how do we get singleness of heart? First of all, we have to develop, a, our worldview comes from this. The world around us, we are to view it through the word of God. He created it. The culture that we live in, the worldview of our, even our, even our Christian students, their worldview, because they've not been discipled appropriately as children, does not come from this. We have to change that. If your worldview came through this, then when you went to the polls to cast your vote, you would make your decision based on what this says. And if that candidate doesn't fit this, you wouldn't vote for them. But we have a worldview that, okay, we're followers of Jesus. But the world needs what that guy's doing, even though he's an abortionist and a murderer, and even though he's a liar and a cheat, we're going to vote for him because he'll do what makes us feel good, or what we think we need. Oh, I better shut up. (laughs) Singleness of heart cannot come to the heart of the believer until we determine that our worldview is the word of God. That means we will handle our finances the way the word of God says to handle our finances. We'll handle our stuff the way the word of God says to handle our stuff. We'll raise our children the way the word of God says to raise our children. We will walk in our relationships the way the word of God says to walk in our relationships. We will vote the way the word of God teaches us that we ought to vote. We will uh, view politics the way the Bible teaches us that we ought to view politics. We will view uh, uh, others the way that the word tells us to view others. We uh, We will be wise as serpents and harmless as doves the way the word tells us to be, if we'll develop singles apart. What they had unique to the early church that the church in our culture does not have above all the other things that I have expressed is singleness of heart. Because fellowship will be rich around the kingdom of God if there's singleness of heart. And the way that they had gladness or joy overflowing, joy unspeakable, the word says, and full of glory, the joy of the Lord that is our strength. They lived in it because they had singleness of heart. The moment your heart is divided, your joy, you got a crack and your joy goes running right out. The moment that your heart is divided. I I really believe there are a lot of believers who who live in a place of a season, long seasons of depression because they have divided heart. They don't have singleness of heart. This defines how your opinion and your view of everything. Oh, that's not popular in our culture. When our students are growing up in a, uh, in a uh, educational system that is, has pushed God out the door, thank God for Christian teachers. I'm telling you, Christian teachers, stay in the public schools. Dear Lord, help them uh, to stay in the public schools. Leroy was talking the other day, at, at, a few weeks back at a Bible study where uh, another teacher came in and he could, uh, he could sense that she was a believer and they began to talk. He could just feel that spirit about her. And before she left the library, they'd had prayer right there and they were praying for their students. They had church right there in the, in the library. But if we don't have Christian teachers in the public school, how do our kids in the public school ever see Jesus? And don't go in there thinking you can't tell them about Jesus. All you have to do is answer their questions. And the only thing you have to do is to make uh, the appropriate kinds of statements that will get them to ask the kinds of questions that you have the liberty to answer when they ask. They'll ask. They'll ask. All you have to do is talk, talk to them about their life. Ask them if they go to church. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a Bible Christian question. Do, you, do your family go to church? No, we don't go to church. Oh. Then they'll say, do you go to church? Then what's the answer to I go to church? Well, I do go to church. I have a relationship with Jesus. Well, what's that? 
Ball, doors open, preach the gospel. Singleness of heart will produce environments where we can preach the gospel and share Jesus in very safe environments and non-threatening ways. We're not tearing anybody down. We're just telling them that Jesus loves them and showing them how to find him. Let me give you some scriptures about that, and then we'll go, we'll wind it up. You're all like, whew, he's at the end of that passage. I didn't know you could get that much out of one verse. I didn't either. <laughs> Acts 2.46 said, They continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Ephesians 6.5 said to employees, in those days, servants, same, same cultural concept. Employees, be obedient to them that are your employers or masters, according to the flesh. What does that mean? In the natural. In other words, if they give you a job, do it. Be the best. Your work ought to bring glory to God. Do it after the flesh with fear, not fear, oh my God, they're going to hit me. Fear and trembling, they're referring to the fear of the Lord. The Bible says, do all things as unto the Lord. When we were with, um, where'd we go? I don't know. It was Kentucky or some, some flipping place I'd never been before. I was with Bishop Halverson. We'd gone to some meeting back there somewhere, and we'd rented a car, and you don't ever want to rent a car with Roger Halverson, but that's another story, and now it's, Felicia, take it off the podcast. Um, Anyway, we, we'd gone into the next state, and we were going to some museums. And we went to what they call a, a shaker museum. I don't know if you're familiar with the shakers. They call them shakers because they were spirit-filled. And they danced before the Lord, and they trembled under the anointing. I don't think it's strange when people tremble under the anointing. But the shakers had some weird, uh, weird things, strange things that they did. When they came to Jesus, they gave all to him, and so they separated from being married. They became celibate. Well, you can't keep going unless you have babies. How many understand? <laughs> the organization's going to die unless you raise up a generation, right? So shakers didn't stay around a long time. <laughs> Thank God we're not that. I love having a wife. And children. Yes. Yeah, I know. They they skipped that somewhere. Be fruitful and multiply thing. I don't know. They missed that. But anyway, they they made furniture and they made brooms and they did did, uh, gardens and things. And they were so aware that everything they were doing, they were doing as unto the Lord, that we were able to find that they still, there is still furniture today that was made by them that was hundreds of years ago, that there's still brooms that was made by them those many years ago, over 100 years ago, that their, the, the quality of their creation still exists today because as they wove those brooms and as they formed those chairs and that furniture that they built, that they were doing it as though God were standing there watching them. And they were preparing it for him to use. That's singleness of heart. Everything is unto the Lord. I'm telling you, if you taught your children to go clean their room like Jesus was going to come sit in there and talk to them, it might, they might get better at it. Just a thought. So he said... Uh, Deal with your masters or your employers according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as unto Christ. That means when your employer gives you an instruction, you're supposed to hear the Lord speaking to you. That's what that says. Okay. Colossians 3.22, it said, Servants, obey uh, in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, not doing only what they can see. You ever had those guys that that do nothing at work and then look busy when the boss is there? Oh, Lord. And then if you work diligently, they come and tell you to slow down because you make them look bad? You ever had that conversation? 
I did once, and you know what I said? You're just going to have to look bad or catch up. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but singleness of heart, fearing God. God is watching. Okay. That's what I believe that the, the church, the culture of the people of God will change to look more like this, the culture of this early church, if we are to become what God desires us to be in the days and years ahead. We must begin to embrace this culture, which means we have to change the areas of our own personal culture where this does not fit. And I just challenge you, I would go read those scriptures, read that verse of scripture, and let the Lord massage that in your spirit. Because this is the day we live in. Matthew 24, 36. Becky alluded to it a few, uh, a little bit ago. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They were living as though God did not exist. That's what he's saying there. They were just being frivolous and going on about their life, not paying attention to the fact that there's a king of kings and a lord of lords. He, God was not affecting their culture. But we're believers, and he ought to be affecting our culture. And in the days ahead, for us to survive as believers and do what God's called us to do and be who God calls us to be, we're going to let him affect our culture. It says, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. They were so not paying attention, and it wasn't because God had not sent a preacher. Noah had preached. Noah was building the ark. They were watching what he did, and they were treating him like he was a fool because no one knew what rain was. But God had said, prophesy to them that a flood is coming. And he prophesied to them, and they rejected his prophecy and went on as though nothing was changing. And that really is the thing that I fear most, if there was something that I fear in the life of believers, is that we would go on as though nothing is changing. Because the Bible says there will be those who will be like, yeah, today's like every other day, as all the days before. When, when, when will be the, you know, his appearing? And, and when is he going to come? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Really, nothing's changed. Well, then maybe you ought to watch Fox News for a minute. (laughs) And then read your Bible. (laughs) Something has changed, right? And he says that's how it will be when the Son of Man is coming. Uh, So we need to determine that that's how it's going to be for that culture out there when the Son of Man's coming, but that's not how it's going to be for us. In order for us to be effective as believers. And I just believe that. I just feel that from the Lord over his people. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you. Your word is so powerful and so practical. Uh, it never, it never um, occurred to me how that you would speak to us to begin to um, consider how our home and our possessions and our things and our extended family and the environments that we've created, uh, how that you would speak to us to begin to let the people of God in to be built up in those environments, setting an environment for your presence, praying with people around the table, talking about the good things of God, building one another up, encouraging one another. Now this, this has nothing to do right, right here in this moment. This has nothing to do, what I hear the Lord saying, has nothing to do with the believer and the world. Although the end of it is, is going to all the world. But right now what I believe the Lord is saying is that he wants to set environments in our homes and in our daily lives, at our desks at work or wherever we're at and in our, in our, uh, in our social environments where we are the mouthpiece that looks into the lives of other believers and says, oh, don't give up. God is with you, don't give up. He'll walk with you. He's not going to abandon you where you are. In that hard place that you're in, don't give up. Stand in his word. 
we've got to return the body of Christ to the place that believers are talking about the good things of God and building one another up with encouraging words, not flowery, fancy words, not religious words. Well, I believe you ought to just read the Bible six times a day. It'll help you. No, I believe you ought to get a hold of a scripture that you can, that you can anchor your heart to in this season that you're in this difficult place. And I'll pray with you and stand with you and believe with you that God will see you through it. We'll walk together here. You're not walking alone. Those are the kinds of words that God wants to put in our mouth for one another. Father, would you do that for us? Would you cause this culture that we've looked into tonight, it's like looking through a biblical window. Would you cause us at the end of this year not to be looking through a window, but to be living a new culture? We'll give you praise for it. We'll give you praise for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't you feel sweetness of the Holy Spirit over that? It's precious. I think God is so jazzed that he might show up at your house and you might be sitting at your table having a cup of coffee with two or three people talking about how wonderful Jesus is. When Benjamin and I were in Estonia, we were sitting around the table with Timor. Timor is an interesting character. Ask Benjamin about him. He'll tell you all about him. We're sitting around the table. Three times a day, those people eat three times a day, no matter what they eat, don't they? They eat and eat and eat. And you're like, eating again? It's wonderful, festive. But almost every time around that table, there was either scripture or some discussion about what God is doing in the earth or prophetic expression or exhortation or prayer. Every single meal, almost without fail, I, can, I cannot remember a meal where the Lord did not have input in some way. That really ought to be the norm in our lives. That ought to be our norm.